Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, good evening everyone. It's 7.20, so I'll go ahead and get started. So we can maximize our time together. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we, we celebrate you tonight. We thank you for your, for your mercy and your goodness towards us as your children. As a loving Father, you have demonstrated your faithfulness over and over again. So we are, we are happy to call you our Father, our Abba. Father, we ask for your spirit tonight. We say that we, uh, we don't know how to understand your words unless you reveal them to us. Open the pages of your Torah so that we may behold wonderful things from them. And we also know that it is because of what your Son has done for us that we can have fellowship one with another. So we, we celebrate this reality in Messiah and we say, Bless you, Yeshua. This is a new season before us, a fresh start. Your mercies have been renewed once again. And so we look to you for, uh, for blessings and we, we seek to bless you in return. Help us to study Galatians. Thank you for, for preserving the book. And um, we know its relevance uh, for our lives today is, is, is very important, so we seek to comprehend that which you're teaching us. Help us tonight. We'll be careful to say all these things in Yeshua's authority. Amen. Okay. Welcome back. Did you guys all have a good break? Yeah? Are you guys all partied out? <laughs> Sukkahed out? <laughs> whatever, whatever, yeah. Um, the holidays are a good thing, but... Uh, now it's time to get back to work. We are studying Galatians. We have um, really just scratched the surface. We have not begun to really see what Galatians is all about. What we have to do is lay the framework for understanding what is driving this guy named Paul to write the way he writes. All right, um, I have a handout because we're back in Galatians. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen. Yeah, I think I have enough. Try that. Just take one and pass it down. Let's just get back into Galatians while you're passing this around. Galatians is a short book and it is really to the point. As far as Paul is concerned, this is one of his short and to the point letters, although Romans itself would act almost like a, a commentary on Galatians, if, in my opinion. Paul writes in Galatians very short, very terse, to the point, to try and take care of a problem that's, that's uh, arisen in Galatians. A very socially driven problem, I should say. Gala uh, wrote Romans, he writes um, before he even goes to Rome, and he seems to take his time and just 
hash out everything. But in Galatians, one of the keys to understanding um, Galatians, in my estimation, and I've been studying Galatians for about coming up on three years now, just kind of intensely studying Galatians alone. And, and I hope to convey this to you as students. One of the things that will help us unlock the keys to Galatians is not only knowing that Paul was Torah observant. I think that's a given. Does anyone in this room not understand that Paul was Torah observant his entire life? Do we have to go that direction in this class? Didn't think so. If this were a class full of those who probably didn't attend this congregation, I might have to spend weeks on that, showing how Paul was Torah observant, laying the groundwork as to who wrote the letter and what's driving him. But I think everyone in this room assumes that Paul's Torah observant. So we're not going to spend eons of time on whether or not the Torah is in force or whether it's not. Why do we? Why would we even say entertain that notion? Is there is there a group out beyond these walls that believes that Galatians teaches that the Torah is done away with? I'm seeing a lot of heads going out north and south. Yeah, what what group is that? The group. <laughs> hey, Zippy. Yeah, yeah. Our our beloved brothers and sisters outside these walls still feel that Galatians is the book where Paul definitively. Puts the nails the, the the coffin on the lid on the coffin as far as the Torah observance. It's done. It's over. Christian liberty. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And Galatians is the proof. Well, we don't have to go that direction because we know that's not what Paul taught. So we have to figure out what is Galatians about. All right. Did everyone get a handout? Did anyone not get a handout yet? Are there extras? Raise your hand if you didn't get a handout. There are two extras. Great. How's that for good estimation? Um, in a nutshell, Galatians is written by a man who is Torah observant. He's writing to a group of people who have come to a knowledge of Yeshua, but they are having trouble fitting into the existing Jewish community. In Paul's day, in Paul's Judaisms, you had Rome and you had Judaisms. Judaisms, plural, by the way. Um, but you had Rome and then you had the Judaisms of Paul's day. And both parties existed under what we might call mutually exclusive agreements. Rome basically agreed to let Israel worship autonomously as a religious group, as a what they call a collegia, um, which means they were exempt from Rome's uh, emperor worship. They were um, exempt from attending the festivals. They were exempt from a lot of stuff. They were able to um, collect money in their synagogues. They were able to make converts. They were able to hold their own business meetings. They were able to do that under Rome's approval. But Rome did not allow any new religions to be started. This is how we know that Paul didn't start a new religion called Christianity. If you do your history research homework correctly, you'll find that Rome didn't allow new religions. So we know that Christianity couldn't have been a new religion. It was either Jewish or it was Rome. It was Romish. And it wasn't until the 3rd or 4th century that it was Romish. So it was Jewish in Paul's day. Question? What was their motivation for allowing the Jews to continue? Money. You Jews, I'm, I'm emperor. I'm the emperor. You Jews, you guys are stubborn. You're feisty. And something else, something else that we don't see. You guys are crazy. You'll die for your faith. We don't even do that. So, I tell you what, you're also very smart and you're thrifty. So, we'll let you operate your own religions, do all you want to do. Just pay us. Yeah. It's called the um, Fiscus Judaicus. We will tax you for your freedom. And the Jews said, fine. Tax us because we won't serve the emperor. And we won't go to his festivals. And we won't give up our monotheism. So, that was that was one of their motivations. Plus, it was it was advantageous for both groups. Yes, that they be monotheistic and all that stuff. 
separate people? Yeah, that is God's intention. They're just having to pay for it. They're just thinking, oh, vague. that's why they were crying out for a Messiah to liberate them from Rome. Because they're sick of paying out of the pocket for their freedoms. But what happens is in Paul's day, when a person of, of non-Jewish persuasion was introduced to the God of Israel, then the only choice for him was to get close to the synagogue and possibly be what we call a God-fearer, which means he was still able to keep his Roman status as a Gentile, a non-Jew, and visit the synagogue very, very closely, give money, give support, things like that. But he was required as a Roman to still do emperor worship, unless he did it in secret. Remember, Rome said you either pay allegiance to the emperor or you're exempt because you're Jewish. That's the world that we that Galatians comes that that we read the letter to Galatians. That's where we find ourselves reading Galatians. Is um, Paul is speaking to a group of Gentile? I'm using air quotes there because I don't want to go into the whole debate of who's a Jew, who's a Gentile. We're going to use the working definitions of those terms. Gentile is a non-Jew. Jew is a non-Gentile. Those are working definitions in that sense. Um, the normative historical meaning of the word Jew or Gentile in Paul's day. The Jews had a word for those who were not Jews. Gentile. <laughs> the Gentiles had a word for those who were not Gentiles. Those guys, the Jews. Same thing happened with Greeks and barbarians and things like that, but you get my point. Um, maybe t- near the end of the class we'll talk about of the whole study. We'll talk about who's a Jew and things like that, but for now we're not going to go there. But the bottom line is Paul's writing to a group of people who are Gentile in their background, but they have embraced Messiah. Now embracing Messiah, they have become monotheistic, right? Like the Jews. They don't want to worship the emperor, but they don't want to do something else. They don't want to become Jews either. Um, that's where Galatians is written, and that's where Paul's having to explain to them um, where their liberty lies. Their liberty is in Messiah. And um, there are options for them. They can either go back to their former lifestyle and worship the emperor and do it as Christians and try and get away with it. Although, is that a really a viable option for a genuine believer in Yeshua? No. But there's another option in that, that Paul has to deal with, and that's in the Judaisms of their day, they had created a policy known as the conversion ritual. And under this policy, under this ritual, you could cease your status as a Gentile and gain Jewish status, and in changing Jewish status, you would then be exempt from emperor worship, because that's how Rome viewed you. Oh, you're Jewish? Okay, then fine. You don't have to serve the emperor. But the problem with that, because it sounds, sounds like a solution for a Gentile believer, The problem with that is, in Paul's letter, the Gentiles were viewing that status change as equated to um, right standing with God himself. That is to say, genuine lasting covenant membership, to use church parlance, salvation. They were viewing conversion as salvation. So that the the church calls them Judaizers, but that's pejorative. I call them influencers. The people influencing the Gentiles to make a switch to Judaism, the influencers, those people were saying, look, just just become a Jew, and then you don't have to, you get full covenant membership, you get out from under Rome's thumb in a sense, yeah, you got to pay tax, but no problem. And many well-meaning Gentiles were going that route, and they were equating getting into Israel with going through this door called conversion. The, the problem with that, from Paul's point of view, is that the doorway into Israel is through Yeshua. And some of them weren't seeing that. Some of the well-meaning Gentile Christians weren't seeing that. They were seeing this as, well, I, 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 they say I have to become Jew in order to be a full-fledged covenant member. Now, something else that enters into it. This is my Torah, right? 
you're a Jew, I'm the rabbi, so you get Torah. You're a Jew, I'm a rabbi, you get Torah. You're a Gentile, you don't get Torah. Torah's for Jews only. Have we ever heard that before? Have we heard that today? Who do we hear from? The church? Do we hear from the synagogue too? Isn't that weird? The church. The Torah's for Jews only. Yeah, go over to the church. Who's the Torah for? It's for the Jews. Oh, go over to the synagogue. Who's the Torah for? It's for us. Isn't that weird? And yet all of us in the room disagree with those two positions, right? Okay, same thing going on in Paul's day. The Torah's for Jews only. So, the well-meaning Gentiles coming into Israel, Paul says, Paul would say to them, do you believe in Messiah? You say yes. Are you a Gentile? You say yes. Good, the Torah's for you. But the synagogue would disagree, the Sanhedrin. They'd have a problem with that. Why are you keeping Torah? You're not a Jew. You're Roman. So there's some upsetting going there. So Paul's going to say the Torah's for them, but the Judaizers or the influencers are going to say, no, you can't get the Torah until you're Jewish. So that's why they're thinking, hmm, well, why don't I just convert then? I'll convert, become a Jew, and then I can keep the Torah. I'm in. I'm a covenant member. So that's where Galatians finds its meat. In order to understand where this whole thing um, gets confusing, we have to understand uh, a simple procedure known as circumcision. So, look at your paper. Today we're going to talk about circumcision. And, and then we're, the next study is called Proselyte Conversion, Works of Law, Part 1, Understanding the Background. Next week we will jump into the thick of it. Uh, what I've been giving you now is just preview stuff. All right, let me read this for you, and also it'll go on over, it'll go up on the internet this way so you can hear it. I'll read, and then we, I'll stop and comment when we need to. Ouch factor, why the, why the male reproductive organ? In other words, circumcision is in fact a sign of the covenant. We talked about that three weeks ago. That's why it's called Brit Milah. Brit, covenant, Milah, circumcision. Or Mul is the root word, as you mentioned. Um, why did God ask Abraham to circumcise himself there. <laughs> you know, why, why couldn't God pick some other place? Um, covenants usually involved at least two parties. Likewise, there was usually a sign of the covenant being established. This sign, according to ancient Middle Eastern writings, was usually something that either party could carry on their person, such as a stone or another object. This sign, when viewed by either individual, served as a reminder that the person was under obligation to fulfill as part of the covenant. It also assured him that the other party was under the same obligations. So, as far as we're concerned, removal of the foreskin of the male sex organ was not exclusively Hebrew. It really wasn't. The, the, Semit, the Semitic people groups have been doing it for a long time. The Muslims still do it today. This is what my point is. In fact, the ancient Egyptians have been doing it for some time as well. But when Hashem asked Avraham to participate in this rather lopsided covenant, and it's lopsided because Avraham did not earn his position before God, it was graciously granted unto him. He didn't do anything. It wasn't what we call a... Um, a suzerain-vassal treaty. Suzerain-vassal treaty is where you have a suzerain, like a king, and a vassal, like a, a defeated nation. And the suzerain would come in and defeat the vassal, and then after he scooped up all the remains, and, and say, he'd say to the vassal, tell you what, I'm going to spare your life, I'm going to let you repopulate your land, but you work for me, I own you. And so since I own you, then you have to do X amount for me, and I will do X amount back for you, that suzerain-vassal. There's another type of treaty in the Near Eastern um, records known as a royal grant treaty. This is where a, a king, again, he came to a vassal and he, he conquered the vassal nation. And he still said, you're mine, but, but he gave her a lot of autonomy. He said, basically, I will rule from afar. Um, and I will protect you and I will sign uh, a protection covenant with you. And if anybody tries to mess with you, they're messing with me. And in essence, you guys just have to accept it. 
but you don't have to do for me so that I can do for you. There's, there's a little, um, a little more of more sovereignty involved. That's why it's called the Royal Grant in the Abrahamic covenant. The paradigm is set in a Royal Grant treaty. God says to Abraham, I'm going to do for you. And all you have to do for me is let, let me do for you. Just accept it. The paradigm is our salvation experience. God says to us, hey, I want to bless the socks off you, and all you have to do is receive it. Okay? But along comes the Mosaic Covenant. The paradigm for the Mosaic Covenant is the, is the suzerain vassal, where God says, okay, I want to continue to bless you, but you guys have to serve me. You have to obey me. You obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. Little, slightly different language than the Abrahamic Covenant. They complement one another. In Abraham's uh, uh, covenant ceremony, and we can read about it in Genesis, in Abraham's covenant ceremony, God tells Abraham, go out and get X amount of animals, cut them up into two pieces, spread them apart, and then I'm going to show up. If you remember the story right, when God shows up, Abraham's flat out asleep. He's knocked out. God passes through the pieces as a flaming torch. The status of Abraham is, is the right thing. This is one of those cases where it's the right thing to be asleep. Okay? It's, 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 it's a signal or a teaching to show us that God is cutting the covenant and Abraham's doing nothing. He's just accepting it. But in other words, Abraham's not even saying, all that you've said I will do, or you know, yes and amen. God's like, you do this, and Abraham's saying, yeah. You know, and God's saying, you do this, and, God's, and Abraham's saying, yeah. None of that's going on. Abraham's just knocked out. God's cutting the covenant. But recall or compare that or contrast that with the Mosaic covenant. All the people are there at the, at the foot of the mountain. God says, I am the Lord your God, blah, 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 blah. And the people said, all that you said we will do. There's response going on. The picture is that it is a, an agreement, a, a, a quid pro quo. You do for me and I'll do for you. You guys catching that so far? All right. There's really two pictures I'm painting. Justification and sanctification. Justification, something that God does and we accept. Sanctification is something that we and God do together. If I could use big theological words that are not in my commentaries, you can write them down if you want to. Justification is monergistic. M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. Monergistic. It means one mon, one ergos work. Energy. One work. Sanctification, by comparison, is synergistic. Soon, multiple, ergos, work. Multiple works. So in justification, God does all the work. It's static. It's more or less one time, and we receive. In the sanctification process, it's us and God working together to accomplish a goal. Does that make sense, or did I lose anyone? Okay. All right. Back to our commentary here. Why did God have Avraham circumcised? Why did he have him remove the foreskin of his penis? In the first place, why, did, why there? Yes, I said the P word. Why there? <laughs> We're all adults here. <laughs> I, I, I had, I got to tell you, I had occasion to take this word out of the commentary because people who receive emails and they have a, a spam blocker that scans the emails for questionable words, they reject this commentary. So like, hey, there was a questionable word in my commentary. <laughs> the P word, okay. <laughs> Come on! All right, anyway. Um, why did he have him remove that part? Okay. Have you ever stopped to ponder this enigmatic question? After all, God's not capricious, you know. He could have easily had our forefather remove skin from his ear or his finger or other part of his body. Why the male sex organ? Okay, you ever ask that question? Ask a Jew, why that part? Most Jews don't have a clue. In fact, most clues don't have a cl- clue what circumcision points to. Do we know? What, is, what does it point to? 
Silence. Wow, I heard the crickets chirping. Okay. All right, let's read on. That's okay. Most people in the church don't know. Tim Haig of FFOZ Notoriety has been, in my opinion, spearheading the movement to bring about a more accurate view of Paul and the Judaisms that he had to, uh, had to confront in the first century by publishing essential books and papers for Christians to carefully examine. I wish to quote from one of his works to show the messianic implications of God asking him to circumcise exactly where he eventually ended up circumcising himself. So let me read. As of, and this is when I downloaded it and put it into this commentary, that was what, last year. Um, referring to our Genesis text, Hegg writes, quote, Chapter 16 opens with an exposition and complication, uh, complication. Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. In the former narratives, if the former narrative settled the question of God's full intention to give offspring, this unit questions the method by which the promise would be fulfilled. In other words, God says to Abram, Hey, I'm going to bless the socks of you. It's a promise of multiplicity. I'm going to multiply you. Abraham's like, that's cool. Because in the Near Eastern um, uh, time period, having a lot of children was a good thing, especially in inheritance-wise. If you were rich and powerful, you don't want to die and have, that, have your riches go every which way. You wanted to be able to keep that in your family. So you wanted to have a lot of kids, prefer, preferably boys, because you could carry the genealogical family heritage or maybe the business or the, or the, or the, the treasure or whatever. We do the same today. We want to pass it down to our kids and to our kids' kids and to our kids' kids' kids. Well, Abraham's childless. So God's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to do all this. And Abraham's like, uh, time out. I don't even have one. You know, it'd be different if Abraham had ten and he was worried and they were all sickly. But he doesn't even have one, one healthy one. So, Abraham follows the advice of his wife and takes Hagar as a second wife. We, we know the story well. The reader is immediately aware, however, that rather than solving the problem, Abraham, the action of Abraham and Sarai has introduced complication into the story. Abraham's not fixing things. By the way, Abraham sleeps with Hagar after God declares him righteous. A little FYI. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, Abraham declares, God declares Abraham righteous in chapter 15. And in chapter 16, he sleeps with Hagar. And then in chapter 17, God tells him to circumcise himself. We need to keep that, keep that in mind as to the progression of the events, why they're happening in the sequence that they are. Okay? Um, the story continues with the appearance of Yahweh to Abraham signaling resolution, reassuring of the continuation and maintenance of the covenant. The issue of the promised offspring, the main subject of chapters 15 and 16, continues in this section. Regardless of the etymological meaning of the change from Abram to Abraham, the narrative is clear that Yahweh has installed Abraham as a father of the nations. Yes, Abraham, don't despair. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do it. Just, just keep your pants on. <laughs> Thus, chapter 17... <laughs> Literally, yeah. Thus, chapter 17 gives the divine solution to the problem addressed in chapter 16. Namely, the realization of the promise regarding a seed. Now, you're, again, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with Galatians? I promise you, this is the framework to understanding Galatians. Because we've got to get inside the mind of Paul. And when Paul uses the words circumcision and things like that, and conversion, we have to understand what, it, what his resources are. And these are the resources. In other words, to understand Galatians, we have to understand Abraham. Especially when we get to Galatians chapter 4, we've got to know what's going on with Abraham or we'll miss all of this. Okay, so bear with me as we establish our foundation. The divine speech Abraham in 17, 1-5 is taken up exclusively with the promise of offspring. The introduction of circumcision continues this theme. The promise of offspring has, has been established, but the method or manner by which the offspring would be realized is now made clear. In the same way that the complications surrounding the promise of land and blessing were resolved by direct divine intervention, so too the promised offspring would come by divine fiat. 
Abraham, God says, Abraham, you're not going to bring the son to, to promise. I know you think you can do it. You and your wife get together and something should happen. But you try to get with your wife and she's dead and you're dead. Your bodies are dead. Your reproduction organs can't function the way they should. Um, therefore, or you're not having any kids. To, you know, you're trying, but nothing's happening. Um, therefore, don't worry about it. I'm going to make it come to pass. It's not going to be you alone. Human enterprise and strength would not be the means by which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham regarding the seed. That's what Hagar represents. That represents what we call effort of the flesh from Abraham's point of view. Abraham's thinking, I'm going to make this thing happen because God's taking too long. How many of us can identify? <laughs> yeah. We feel that God has given us promises and then you know, years go by and the promises aren't happening. So we're thinking, okay, I guess I need to help, out, help God out. And guess what? That's just human nature. Yeah, we do that. So don't look too bad hard on Abraham. All right. Circumcision, that is to say the cutting away of the foreskin, reveal this explicitly. Coming on the heels of God's renewed promise to Abraham regarding his progeny and his installation as a father of a multitude of nations, the sign of circumcision upon the organ of procreation, not on the toe, not on the ear, not on the nose, but in that spot, the sign of circumcision there must be interpreted within the narrative flow as relating to the method by which the complication, the absence of children, and the age of both Abraham and Sarah would be resolved. The promise would come not by the strength of the flesh, which the Hagar plan represented, but rather by above human means. If circumcision were a sign given to Abraham which pointed specifically to the need for faith in regard to the coming seed, it is valid to ask whether or not the other Old Testament authors also attached this meaning to the ritual. That is to say, God says, I'm going to make a promise to you. And the way the promise is going to come about is through my strength. Therefore, when you, since you tried to make the promise happen with Hagar under your own strength, I'm going to give you a sign, a reminder, that it's not by your own strength. And I'm going to have you mark yourself in the very place where you tried. But I'm going to have you also mark yourself in the very place where the promise is going to, is going to happen. I'm going to have you cut away that, or part of, away, part of that, which you used to bring about the promise. I'm going to have you cut part of the flesh away. The flesh of the thing that you used to try and make it happen. So it's a very, very uh, strong reminder of, of what God's doing. Interestingly, the two-time circumcision is used in a metaphorical sense in the Pentateuch. Um, there's your references. Deuteronomy uh, 10, 16, and, and 36. The immediate context is that of the Abrahamic covenant. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, the unit begins by an exhortation to revere the Lord your God, to walk only in his paths, which is very close to Genesis 17, 1. Walk before me and walk before me and be blameless. Further, in Deuteronomy 10.15, the covenant love of Yahweh for the fathers becomes the basis for the ex exhortation to cut away the thickening about your hearts. Keep in mind that Abraham acting in the flesh is, a rep is also tied into his, what we should say is, what, unbelief? I mean, he did believe God, but he, he wavers a little bit. You know what I mean? He falters. and He's thinking, I believe God, but, you know... I'm really anxious about this thing. It's not happening, and maybe I can sleep with Hagar. And you know, after all, it's my seed. You know, and Hagar's not my Hagar's not Sarah, but I mean, still my son legally. That's true. So maybe it's maybe it's Hagar. Maybe that's it. So he sleeps with Hagar. They have a son, and God steps in and says, "Uh, that ain't it. That's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen supernaturally, because." Abraham's promise of the prom or Abraham's expectation of the promised seed is the type and shadow of Yeshua himself, the promised seed. Is not Yeshua a son of Abraham? Down the line. 
did not God say to Abraham, through you all the nations of the family will be blessed. Through your offspring, all the nations of the family will be blessed. Ultimately, that fulfillment of promise comes through Yeshua. As the nations pour into Yeshua, they receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham. But Abraham is a descendant of Isaac. And Isaac is a descendant of, of Abraham. So, it's, it is through Isaac, but it's also through Yeshua. And Yeshua was produced by above human means. Did Yeshua receive any help from the Father coming into this world? From his male father, from Joseph? No. He was born supernaturally. Therefore, Isaac, if we look backwards, must also be born supernaturally. Isaac and Yeshua are linked in that sense. Okay, Yeshua's the second Isaac. Isaac's the, f the first Yeshua, however you want to look at that. Okay, so they're both the promised son. I'm using air quotes because they both are the promised son. So, um... Walk before me and be blameless. Further in Deuteronomy 10.15, the covenant love of Yahweh for the fathers becomes the basis for the exhortation to cut away the thickening about your hearts. That is, if the promises made to the fathers should be realized, it will be so only as each Israelite relates to Yahweh on the basis of faith. The heart which relies on the flesh, foreign powers, self-strength, etc., will fail. Rather, the fleshy heart must be cut away and discarded. So, circumcision itself, we already know, is a sign of an... It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Right? That's what Abraham's being told by God. Abraham, you're going to have a promised son, and ultimately this son... And God can speak in riddles in this sense. God can say to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a son, and ultimately this son's going to bless the world. And we, listening on, as we watch this, this drama go, is, is God, we say to Bumper, is God talking about Isaac or Yeshua? Because we, we know the, how the story ends. And the, the, the answer is, yes. He's talking about both. But Abraham's not catching that all right away. He's catching bits and pieces of it. But he has to catch enough of it that he can still walk in faith. He may not have known Yeshua at that point, but it, it will be get up to at least um, Genesis chapter 22. He catches a vision of Yeshua on the mountain where he had seen and then it's really clear to him. He's like, whoa, this is where this thing is going? Wow. You know, he's really, it blows his socks off. So, in reference to the circumcision in the apostolic scriptures, Heggs makes these pertinent remarks. What brings Paul to use Abraham in his exposition here is the central promise of the covenant that, quote, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God basically tells Abraham, get up, get out, I'm going to bless you. In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Using Christian 2020 hindsight, we know that that's referring to Yeshua. But from Abraham's point of view, it must refer to Isaac first. But ultimately, it finds its full, ultimate fulfillment in Yeshua. But it has to start with Isaac. He didn't think he was going to give birth to the Messiah. At least I don't think so. He just needs a son. So, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul's argument in Galatians, is that this promise was given to Abraham before circumcision. This is the meat where we need to capture today for our Galatians study. God says to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, I'm going to, you're Abraham for now. Is that okay? How you doing, Abe? Nice to finally meet you. You're, you're, you're younger looking than I thought. Okay. Um, I figured you'd have gray hair. And, yeah, okay. Um, Chris here in the front row for those listening on the internet this is my Abraham character. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. When he gives this to Abraham, Abraham is still uncircumcised in Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, Abraham's still uncircumcised. In Genesis 14, Abraham's still uncircumcised. In Genesis 15, Abraham catches the vision 
of the promise made in Genesis 12. And God shows him on the mountain, shows him the stars, and shows him this. And he says, this is how men, numerous your seed is going to be. Do you get it, Abraham? And Abraham's like, yeah, I get it. And in that getting, Moses records via the Holy Spirit, it was credited to him, him Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness. That is to say, at this point in time, Abraham, you are a righteous fellow. You're a tzaddik, to use Hebrew terminology. You're righteous. That's Genesis 15. But guess what? He's still uncircumcised. Genesis 16, he sleeps with Hagar, still uncircumcised. Genesis 17, God says, Abe, come here. We've got a problem. I made a promise to you way, you know, I made a promise to you five chapters ago. Of course, that's not what God said, but we know that. I made a promise to you five chapters ago, and, and then three chapters after that, which is two chapters ago, you be, I credited to your account righteous. That's what I told Moses to write. I'm really being funny now. I told Moses to write that you're righteous because you caught it. I saw into your heart and you caught it. What's this Hagar thing? What are you doing? Abram's like, I'll be, I'll, 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 I'll. the woman you gave me, she made me do it. <laughs> Read the narrative, I think he says, because didn't Sarah say, you know, gosh, go into Hagar. Um, <laughs> you, you men, you're always blaming your wives for everything that's your fault. But anyway, um, so God says, God says, you know what, Abraham, you're still uncircumcised and you believed. So here's what I want you to do to, to clean this thing up. I want you to circumcise yourself. And then in 18, he's recovering. That's the Oaks of Mamre, Parashat. Uh, I forgot what the Parashat is, but it begins at Genesis chapter 18. The three visitors show up. Abraham serves the milk and meat. That's, that's Genesis 18. He's still recovering. Latter half of 18 is um, the three angels. Two of them go off to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. One of them stays, and Abraham bargains with them. That's Genesis 18 narrative, okay? The point is, at that point, it's Abraham circumcised, but not before. Paul's going to pick up on the sequence of events and go, hmm circumcised or uncircumcised 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 uh, these are my chapters in the Torah Genesis 5, 12 13 14 15 16 he's going to go uncircumcised uncircumcised circumcised you see promise 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 righteous circumcised wait a minute it's not it's not the order that his Judaisms would put it in what brings Paul to use Abraham in this exp- I'm sorry I read that uh, Ab- uh, Paul's argument is that this promise was given to Abraham before circumcision and that therefore Abraham may rightly be considered the father of all who participate in the same faith, whether circumcised or not. That's Paul's point. In fact, the promise that Abraham would be a father of nations is applied more precisely by the apostle in the phrase, father of all who believe. Even though Paul's quoting from the Septuagint and the Septuagint has already filled in the phrase, Father of all nations, all goyim, with father of all who believe. Paul's argument, while given to prove another point, still confirms what I, and this is Tim Haig, obviously, have previously maintained about circumcision. The ritual did not bring something new to the covenant. Abraham's status doesn't change. He's righteous before he's circumcised. That's the point. It doesn't bring something new to the covenant, but rather reinforced righteousness on the basis of faith. Okay? He gets circumcised as a sign of something that was already there. God says, circumcise yourself so that now the outward matches the inward. Because two chapters ago, God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, we're standing in chapter 17 where Abraham is receiving circumcision, and God reminds him two chapters ago. Can you guys pick, follow along when I say that? Two chapters ago, I declared you righteous. So I want you to now line the outward up with the inward. Don't try in the flesh anymore, Abraham. I'm going to bring a son. In fact, at this point in time, I'm just going to go ahead and break the, this tension. You're going to have a son in a year. God tells them then finally. And they're like, yeah. Of course, Sarah laughs and 
you know, what? I'm going to have a son in a year? Yeah, yeah. a year from now, you're going to have the kid. Whereas before, God was not telling him those details. God was withholding that, testing Abraham, trying to bring his faith out. So, question. Thank you for the five-minute warning, by the way. Kind of, yeah. Circumcision and baptism. In fact, later on in the Middle Ages, the church did replace baptism, replace circumcision with baptism. So, um, so that makes sense. And, and circumcision then required Abraham to continue in the faith that had brought him from Ur and to direct his faith toward the God who had promised to bring a son by divine intervention. Abraham had faith from the word go, at least as far as the Torah narrative assumes he does. I mean, God says to a 75-year-old man, hey, get up, get out. And the, and the man gets up and goes. There's faith there, okay? What we're saying, though, is that, that the Ruach HaKodesh directed Moshe to write in Genesis chapter 15, prior to his circumcision in chapter 17, but after the promise in chapter 12, um, it was credited to him as righteousness, because Paul picks up on that. It's like, hey, this is, this is important. So, um, it is on this basis that Paul in Galatians 4.23 refers to Ishmael as according to the flesh, and Isaac as through promise. Because it's based on the heart of Abraham. Paul has shown that a primary function of the law was to point to Christ. We already know that. Galatians 3.24 And it therefore stands to reason that circumcision has fulfilled its function. For Christ, the promised seed has come. In other words, circumcision points towards the promised son. But the, the earthly promised son, or the tie, the shadow, is, is Isaac. The fulfillment is Yeshua. We, have, we haven't lost sight of that fact. All right. So circumcision points towards Yeshua. Every baby boy from that point is saying, not by my human means am I going to bring the Messiah into this world. Nope, only God can bring the Messiah to us, in essence. In other words, the promised son. God was saying that of, uh, Abraham was saying that of himself. Okay, as I, as I see myself multiple times a day as a circumcised male now, I'm reminded that I can't bring the promised son to pass. Only God can do it. I have faith in God. God brings the promise to pass. And therefore, I will also, I'm Abraham talking, I will also circumcise every boy in my household so that when they grow up and, and as I teach them Torah and God's promises, they will also be able to say of themselves, not by me, myself am I bringing the Messiah into this world. The promised son isn't coming by my, by my flesh. It's only through God's uh, power that the Messiah can come. That's what circumcision pointed towards. So now that Yeshua has come, that's where we're picking up our discussion. Um, for Christ, the promised seed has come. Israel worshiping the sign, rather than the seed to which it pointed, had attributed to circumcision what only God's Son could accomplish. Covenant, lasting covenant, genuine and lasting covenant membership. Included, inclusion in God's household. In other words, this Paul plainly asserts in his statement that in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So we understand now a little bit of background behind circumcision when Paul uses it. All of this story of Abraham is wrapped up in Paul's midrash on the terms circumcision. He's understanding that understood properly in my last few minutes here, understood properly circumcision is is not only a biblical command, it serves a pertinent reminder that that thank you that the Judaizers <laughs> Did everybody else jump that the, that, that, that the males in Abraham's household are to show that the Messiah comes through supernatural means. Now that the Messiah has already come, we still affirm the fact that Messiah came 
in supernatural means. But Judaism, the Judaisms of Paul's day, had taken circumcision and removed it from its, from its cradle of faith and parked it in a cradle of ethnic status. And that's where we'll pick up next week. They had created a way for the non-Jew to enter into the promises of God. That's what it means to be an Israelite. To enter into the promises of God by a work on the outside, devoid of faith. They were not asking the proselytes, do you have genuine faith in God? No, they were just saying, hey, do you have enough money to convert? And are you willing to go under the knife? And if you were willing to do it, then you could get in. And they would declare you, you know, ominous dominus, you're an Israelite. And you were... Hope this doesn't go out on the internet the wrong way. Um, you, you would then become an Israelite. And in that sense, the rabbis would, or the proto-rabbis would declare you as a covenant member. And Paul's saying, without faith in Messiah? You guys are missing the whole picture. Messiah is the center of the promises. The center of the covenants. The center of God's blessings. And outside of him, you're missing it. So that's what we're going to pick up next week. And begin to decipher and decrypt some of Paul's phrases that have misled the church for centuries. They read, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And they think, we're not under Torah observance. So that's where we're going to go next week. All right, so there's no homework for this week. Let me dismiss. Abba, we bless you and we love you. We say thank you for preserving this book. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Help us to continue to study and grow so that we may serve you better. We love you tonight and we say bless you in Yeshua's authority. Amen. Thank you. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>